throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of those who would justify their behavior, and we also see examples of those who would come to repentance. And so one of the main questions we ask, you know, as we think about uh, walking through John, and John, you know, he has this kind of circular argument, not it's not circular logic, you know. Circular logic is, uh, I love one of my friends, he, everybody know Tigger, right? Tigger? The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. That's circular logic, right? So my friend used to always say the wonderful thing about circular logic is, circular logic is a wonderful thing. So it's not that John is creating circular logic. It's not that he's got like, the, the wonderful thing about God is that God is a wonderful thing. It's that he's doing this circular, uh, almost like a spiral argument where he returns and revisits the same topic over and over again. And so we started looking at, he first, uh, he lays out for us that Jesus came in the flesh, that, that John and others handled, John, John and others scrutinized, John and others witnessed Jesus in the flesh. And then he starts giving us this, these two ideas of walking with God and walking in the darkness. And he starts to unpack this in like a kind of a spiral-bound way where if you, are, uh, if you are abiding in God, you are walking in the light. If you do not have fellowship with God, you are, abide, you are walking in the dark. And he, un, he continues to unpack this and eventually says, those who, are, uh, who, hate one, who say they have fellowship with God but hate their brother are still in the dark. But those who love their brother are in the light. And then last week he introduced this idea of the Antichrist. Those who deny Jesus as the Christ. And I think it's important for us to understand that because sometimes we want to throw around this idea of Antichrist kind of flippantly. And I don't think that's okay to just throw around the idea of Antichrist flippantly. I mean, we can, we can go heretic hunting if we will. And that's not okay. In fact, I think these antichrists were counterfeits. They weren't the real thing. And that's what we talked about last week, that they're not the real thing. But sometimes we can get so caught up in in heresy hunting and counterfeit hunting that we actually miss the real thing. And we actually miss God's grace working in our heart. Jen has warned me about using the line, the witch in the wardrobe and the chronicles of Narnia too much because not everybody has read that. Right? Not everybody, not everybody is a C.S. Lewis purist. That's fine. But, but I often think, when I think about heresy hunting, I often think about the, the uh, dwarfs at the end, the last battle. And if you're not familiar with this, the dwarves are characters that like, go throughout all of the Chronicles. There's seven different books. And, and at the very end, the last battle has these characters named Puzzle and Shift. And they pretend to be Aslan. Aslan is like the godlike figure throughout all of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? So Aslan represents Jesus. And Puzzle and Shift make up a pretend Aslan. And they pretend to be Aslan. And they confuse all of Narnia. And, and it's so crazy how this happens. But all these beasts that want to be true to Aslan start falling underneath this fake, this counterfeit Aslan. And they start doing horrible things because Aslan said so. Well, the dwarves figure out that it's a counterfeit. But they decide they will never be taken in again. And their they're saying is, the dwarves are for the dwarfs. We'll never be taken in again. The dwarves are for the dwarfs. And I think that is the heresy hunter. Well, what's amazing about this is at the very end, Aslan shows up and the dwarfs can't recognize him. Because the dwarfs will not be taken in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs will not be taken in. And I think when we start becoming heresy hunters, that's what we become like. We become like those dwarves that are like, no way. I'm not going to be taken in again. There are counterfeit Jesuses out there. And you get so focused in on never falling prey to the counterfeit Jesus that the real one can show up on your doorstep and you wouldn't recognize him. So how do we recognize Jesus? Well, Paul lays it, or sorry, John lays it out very simple for us. Whoever denies Jesus as the Christ. That's it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of counterfeits out there that are denying Jesus as the Messiah. We don't have to conjure up new ones. There's enough counterfeits out there that we have to deal with. Now, that means that there are some people within Christianity that are not counterfeit. They're not falling in with the Antichrist, but they have bad theology. We can call bad theology for what it is, bad theology. It's okay to say that 
that group over there has bad theology. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're counterfeit. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're antichrist. So when it comes to us and examining our own heart, how do we know if we're falling in line with the antichrist? How do we know if we are a child of God? Well, I think one of the best ways to examine that is to look through, uh, to ask the question, when confronted with my sin, do I justify and excuse or do I repent? So throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of this all over the place. The first example is Adam. I mean, just right off the bat, right? Adam eats of the fruit. Now notice, it's not through Eve that sin enters through the world. It is through Adam when he willfully eats of the fruit, right? So, so Adam eats of the fruit, and they, they realize they're naked, and they run and hide themselves, and, and God comes and he confronts Adam, and what does Adam say? She made me, it's the girl. It's all the girl's fault. And not only does he do that, but he goes one step further, and he almost blames God for his sin, because what does he say? It's not just she did it. He said, it's the girl you gave me. It's the woman you gave me. If you hadn't made the woman, I would have never been in sin in the, begin in the beginning. God, blame her and kind of blame yourself. How often have we done this, though, too? God, you gave me this desire. Well, I don't think that desire was from God. Although God does give us some good desires that we then twist, doesn't he? I think throughout the Song of Solomon, it's, it's a book that says sexual desire within the marriage is a good thing. So we see that God created sex as a good thing, but man, do we love to take what God has created as a good thing and twist it all over the place. And so we see people all over the world justifying this horrible behavior that they have, saying, well, God gave me this desire. So of course, of course I got to act on it. I knew a guy that was addicted to pornography. And he looked back through the Old Testament and he said, well, King Solomon had a harem. David had a harem. So, of course, it's perfectly okay for me to justify my pornography addiction because I see characters in the Old Testament who have twisted sexuality as well. Twisting God's word, twisting and justifying our own rotten behavior. But we also see characters that are complete opposite. King David. When King David is confronted with sin, what does he do? When King David has Uriah killed because he has been sleeping with Uriah's wife. Now, if, when we think about, like, if you were to rank sins, you would think what King David did there was, like, up there. Not many people, like, there, some people might rank some other sins up there, but not many more sins get up there beyond what King David did, right? Like, that is vile, that is disgusting sin. And when he's confronted with it, what does he say? Well, you could see, I, I saw her, and God put this desire in my heart, so you could see why I'm justified in doing this. No, that's not what he does. When King David is, is confronted with his sin, King David repents, and he confesses. It is against you, God, that I have sinned. And he writes, Psalms about how bad he messed up. He has truly a repentant heart. So when it comes to identifying whether, or when it comes to being able to identify whether or not we are the ch a child of the Antichrist, the devil, or if we are the, a child of God, I think one of the biggest questions we need to ask is, when confronted with sin, do I repent or do I justify? And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our study, uh, Christ is Life, a study through 1 John. We're picking up in chapter 3. We'll read all the way from verse 1 to 10 today. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow, there's a lot going on there, and and it almost seems confusing. You know, for the most part, and we talked about this even in in our hermeneutics class, for the most part, I don't think you need the original Greek to help understand. I think this is one of those passages where it's really helpful to understand the original Greek. So let's dive in. We'll talk a little bit about the original Greek. But he begins this section with, see what kind of love the Father has, has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So the see here should, I think, I think some of your translations say behold. The old King James has behold, right? Yeah, Larry's like, yes. Uh, yeah, and I think that's actually more accurate because it's not just see. It's kind of an exclamation. John's a little bit excited, I think. He's like, see, look, behold, what kind of great love God has for us. So what's exciting him? It's the love the Father has for us. That should be exciting. The love that God has for you should be exciting. Sometimes we start to think of God as this like far-off creature that does not interact with us at all. Some far-off creature that just kind of created us and left. Or maybe we think he's this cold, impersonal, judgy God. And John's saying, no, 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 see what great love he has for us. He is a personal God that loves you. He absolutely loves you. And what is the evidence of this love? That we should be called children of God. Now think about this love, this great love. We were people committing great offense towards God. Every single one of us has committed a great offense toward God. Every single one of us has shaken our fist at God in our sin. Every single one of us has said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. Everything, every single one of us has tried to usurp God's role. Every single one of us has tried to usurp, usurp God's authority somewhere in our life. Every single one of us has rebelled against God in some form. And yet... Even in our rebellion, he provided a way for our relationship to be redeemed. Because in our rebellion, we we had a severed relationship from God. Because of our rebellion, we deserved death and eternal separation from God. And yet, because he has such a great love for us, he came to this earth And he paid the price for your rebellion. He paid the price for you trying to usurp his authority. And he laid a pathway for redemption for you so that you can come back into relationship with God. Now think about the level of love for a second. Think about a king or maybe a president. Since we live in America, we have presidents, right? Think about a president who under his watch sees an insurrection mounting, sees his generals turning against him, sees this rebellion forming. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was that president, I'd be dropping some bombs. You guys going to rebel against me? Feel my wrath. Think about it in your own personal life. When someone comes up against you, when someone starts to become your enemy, how quickly are you to cut them out? How quickly are you like, forget you, dude. Peace out. It's so quick. And yet God didn't give up on us. God didn't leave us to our own. He provided a way back. He provided a way that we could have restored relationship with him. And not only just to have a restored relationship, but to be called a child of God. 
it wasn't just that he provided a way back. It was that he provided a way that we could be again called children of God. To be a child means that we get all the rights and all the privileges of the family. This is, uh, this week we had our anniversary of adoption day for Harper. When we adopted her, the judge made it very clear that we were to treat her like our very own. She would get part of our inheritance. Good luck with that, sorry, but it's not going to be big. She would get all the privileges of being our children, our child. Everything that our biological kids get, she gets. Think about the great love the Father has for you. That even in your rebellion, He would call you His child. He has redeemed you. He calls you His child. And everything the Son gets, we get because of Him. The righteousness that He has, we get because of Him. The right relationship with God, we get because of Him. What an amazing amount of love God has. And he goes on. He wants to emphasize this even more. So he goes on. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are is kind of a way of saying this is absolutely true. You can bet on it. It's a guarantee. You are a child of God. Some might deny it. Some might say, there's no way you can be a child of God. The enemy doesn't want you to believe that you're a child of God, that God loves you that much. And John is saying, you can bet on it. It's a guarantee. You are a child of God. He loves you with such a great love. The evidence is that he calls you a child of God, that he sees you through the lens of his own son. And then he goes on to say, to kind of emphasize why he has to uh, uh, say that you can bet on it. The reason why the world does not know us is that he did not know him. So the idea here is that unbelievers do not recognize us as children of God because they don't recognize God. If they don't recognize God, then clearly they're not going to recognize our claim to be God's child. It makes perfect sense. It's very logical. But he goes on. Beloved, we are God's children now. So he doesn't let the world define us. He doesn't let the world have its claim on us, right? That you can't be a child of God. They don't even know God. So of course they're not going to recognize us as, as God's children. But he says, no, you are God's children now. You might have been at war against God. You might have been a child of the devil. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, he makes you a child of God. You are a child of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So this, uh, the idea behind this line is that you aren't perfected yet. You are a child of God, and you're going to be growing in his position. I think sometimes it's important for us to talk about position and action. Because if we don't clarify this, I think we're going to mess the rest of this passage up. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he positionally changed you. He made you a child of God. He made you holy. He made you righteous. He made you just. He made you washed, pure, clean. All the good stuff. He, he no longer sees you through your behavior of sin. He now sees you through the lens of Christ. And Christ has placed his righteousness on top of you. So positionally, you have been made these things, right? But behaviorally... I think we can all say none of us are perfect. Behaviorally, some of us are still messing up. Let me rephrase that. Behaviorally, every single one of us is messing up, right? There's not a single one of us that's perfect. So behaviorally, we're still kind of caught in some snares of the flesh. And so I think that's what he's getting at here. We are, we are now, currently, we are called children of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Meaning, when Christ comes again, we will be perfected. We will live in a perfectly sinless state at that point. But right now, we're going to be wrestling with our behavior still. So he continues on. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him 
as he is. So I think the idea that he's driving here is that you are not living in that perfected state yet. We go all the way back to chapter 1 where he says, whoever says he doesn't sin is a liar, right? Like we're still wrestling with bad behavior. But God is maturing us more and more in the position that he has placed us in. That's the point that he's getting at. And I think verse 3 emphasizes this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, uh, you've realized that you have rebelled against God, against a holy God, and the result is separation from God and slavery to sin. But God loves you with such a great love that he paid the price so you could be brought back to relationship with him, that you could be freed from slavery to sin, and you could be called a child of God. If that is true of you, then you have this hope. The hope is that he is transforming you and he will one day perfect you. Now, hope in the New Testament is not just wishful thinking. We hear the term hope, and what we really mean when we say, I hope, means I wish. I, you know, I, I, I'm not, it's not dependent, uh, it's not dependable, but this is what I'm hoping or wishing will happen. So some of you might say something like, uh, I hope the 49ers win the Super Bowl. Now, this is really just wishful thinking, isn't it? Some of you a couple weeks ago that are Detroit Lions fans found that out very personally. It was just wishful thinking. It didn't actually happen. But in the New Testament, hope is something in the future that is a guarantee. So when, I, when John writes, you have this hope, it's not wishful thinking that Christ will perfect you when he returns. It is a guarantee. You know this will happen. We know that God is transforming us and one day will perfect us. I think it's important to note that our hope then is not in our ability to perfect ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to make ourselves better. Our hope is in Christ transforming us. It's in him perfecting us. So our hope is not in our works or our flesh trying to make us righteous, but our hope is in Christ And it is in Christ that is doing the work in us. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to interact with the Word. Because as we interact in the Word, the Holy Spirit interacts in the Word on our behalf and begins to refine us into the position that God has already put us in. And so because we have this hope, we are purifying ourselves. Now what's interesting here is the term for purifying is hagnizo, hagnizo. I stumble over that word because I'm really used to another word that we use for holy or sanctified, and that's hagiadzo. So hagiadzo and hagnizo, they're very similar words. Hagnizo is an unusual word. It's similar to the term we translate as like, uh, as the term hagiadzo. The main difference is that uh, holy or consecrated hagiadzo is a positional statement. God has made you holy. God has consecrated you. God has hagiadzoed you. Whereas hagnizo is a reference to ritual purification. So the idea is to live a holy life because God has made you holy. Notice it's not you who made you holy. It's that you begin to transform your behavior because God has made you holy. You can't make yourself more holy. You can't make yourself less holy. But you can act like a holy person or a less holy person. Your actions can be less holy. That's important for us to get. So God does not condone sin. So here we find that we need to live according to the position that God has placed us into. Another interesting aspect of this verse is the use of the word kathos, which most translations translate as just as, kathos. So this term suggests that Jesus is the source and the mode of the believer's righteousness. The idea is that to become more like Jesus is the goal. Want to know how to live a pure life? Want to know how your behavior can be more holy like the position you've been placed into? Model Jesus' behavior. 
Jesus is the mode. He is what we are trying to conform to. But the word also indicates the source. How do you live a pure life? By submitting your will to that of Jesus, to remind yourself of who he is, to remind yourself of what he has done. And to do this, we remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. He matures us in holy living as we remind ourselves and submit to the truth of the gospel. So it is both the mode and the source. We should be looking to Jesus as the model of behavior that we strive for. Do you want to know how to live this holy life that God has placed you into? Look towards Jesus. How did Jesus live? I know it's, it's been overused, but what would Jesus do will always ring true. Because Jesus always did what was right. So he is the mode. He is the model. He is what we should be striving for, but he is also the source. The only way you will ever truly live a, a holy life is to let Jesus transform you. Sometimes we can do it for a little bit out of our own power. Sometimes we can really bang ourselves into submission and make ourselves not have a fit of anger for a little bit. But the difference is the transformation that Jesus creates in your heart is permanent. The transformation that I punish myself into, that I rigidly force myself into is always temporary. So it has to be the work of Christ. Our job then is to go back to the truth of Scripture, to submit to Scripture, to let Scripture change us. Next, John contrasts the refining process with those who will not let themselves be purified. Picking up in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So the word sin is what it is in what is called the dorative present tense. It gives the idea of continuing to do something or to make a lifestyle of something. So the idea isn't that you messed up once. The idea isn't that you pulled a King David and murdered somebody, and so you'll never be a part of God, never be called God's child. The idea is that you are making a lifestyle out of your sin. In ancient Hebrew culture, the terms sin and lawlessness were practically interchangeable because to violate the Mosaic law was lawlessness, but also to violate the Mosaic law was sin. So we already know that we are no longer under the Mosaic law. So what does he mean by lawlessness? That sin is lawlessness. I think it's a reference back to the command to love one another. So many people have used the cover of love to sin. Even in small ways, we've used the cover of love to sin, right? So we think like something like, no harm, no foul. My sin didn't hurt anyone. I'm not hurting anyone. And John is saying, your sin hurts others. Even the smallest of your sin hurts others. There is no sin that doesn't hurt others. Your sin is breaking the new commandment to love others. So we think it's just a little white lie. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's, it's a sin that doesn't hurt. And it's a lie. No matter how small, it hurts others. Your sin will always, always have graver consequences than you can know. Your sin will always impact more people than you think. Your sin hurts others. So to practice any sin, to make a lifestyle of any sin, to justify any sin is to break the new commandment. And in particular, it is to cause offense to the one who died to take away sin. Because Jesus died to take away sin. Picking up in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him... There is no sin. So once again, this is the derivative sense. It's this idea that there is, you do not continue to practice sin. When called out on your sin, do you repent or do you justify? Well, you can see, I can't tell you how many people I have confronted or I've, I've been in the room when they were confronted with sin and the words they used were, well, you could see why I had to do it. 
And, and they would have this long story, and then all of a sudden it would be, well, so now you can see why I had to do this sin over here. They were justifying their sin. They were making a practice, a lifestyle of sin, and they were justifying it instead of saying, you know what, you were right. And instead of repenting, they just justify it. So Jesus came because sin is offensive to God. He is whole, God is holy, God is just, and he loves his creation. So we deserve death when we are in rebellion. We deserve death when we sin against God. But Jesus came to free us from the penalty of sin. He died so that we may live. To make a lifestyle of sin is to mock the very sacrifice he made. To justify our sin is to mock the very sacrifice he made. And I think it creates a question. And the question is, do you really know Jesus? If you are making a lifestyle of sin, if you refuse to repent of your sin, do you even know it? Because you're mocking. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Do you even know him if you continue to sin, if you continue to justify? I think the idea here, we can hear these verses sometimes, and I think we can get, really get caught up in like always just examining. And John is going to address this in a couple weeks, uh, that, that your conscience can still be free. So I think sometimes we can get, get busy sin hunting when we hear these verses instead of taking this general principle. And I think the general principle is, are you moving more towards conforming to Christ? Or are you moving away from conforming to Christ? That's what he's really driving at here, right? So if the goal of the Christian life, if Jesus conforming to his image, if acting how Jesus acted is the goal, everybody has a different starting point, right? So I can look at someone that has this huge huge gap in their starting point. Maybe someone that was abused, grew up in an abusive household. And because of the abuse, and they didn't know Christ, the only coping mechanism that they had was drugs and sexual immorality. And so they turned, in order to cope with this abuse, they started sleeping around, and they started numbing pain, and, and all they were doing for their an almost entire adult life has been numbing pain. And so the, the way they act is way off from the way Christ would act, right? And not only that, but then they became hateful, and they become judgmental, and their heart is just torn in pieces, and then they come to know Christ. Well, there's this huge gap. And the question isn't, have you cleaned up your life perfectly right away? It's not an overnight thing. But the question is, are you moving more and more towards the goal? I often think of my uncle, who grew up in an abusive household, didn't know how to handle the pain, so turned to drugs and alcohol. Meth was a thing that he just couldn't kick. He died on his 50th birthday. He had this huge gap between his behavior and the behavior of Christ. The question isn't, was he still addicted to meth when he died? The question is, was he taking steps towards Christ? And sometimes some people grow up in a Christian household and they grow up with this great head start. And don't get me wrong, that's what we want for our kids, right? Like We, we want to raise our kids modeling Christ right off the bat. But sometimes we raise these kids, and, and they're, they're, man, they're, they're really close, and so they just keep taking steps further, closer and closer to Christ. But sometimes they look back at someone like my uncle, and they say, you're not saved. You still struggle with meth, man. And they don't even recognize the amount of pain that he's been struggling with his entire life and the neurological pathways that he's been struggling with his whole life. Sometimes we can read this verse, and we can become really judgmental. But there's a reason why sinners and prostitutes flocked to Christ. 
And so maybe a better measuring stick isn't how, how uh, I, I, maybe a good measuring stick is also how much grace do I extend to others? Because Christ extended grace to others. So if we're raising a bunch of kids that, man, they are sexually pure and they've never touched alcohol and they don't cuss, but they're busy judging others based on their works, maybe our kids are further back from modeling Christ than we actually think they are. I mean, don't get me wrong. They've got, they've got bodily behavior down. But if they're not offering grace to the, to the least of these, if we're not offering grace to the least of these, then are we really modeling our behavior after Christ who modeled grace to the least of these? Whom sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes wanted to be with? I think that's the point that he's getting at here. And that's the point of this sense, the durative sense that he's using. So once again, we see this word, abide. Last week, we talked about how this word is a main theme of first job, John, and the word means to remain, continue, and dwell. So the idea is, are, you are abiding in Christ, he will continue to grow you. If you're not abiding in Christ, the result will be sinful behavior. The result will be slavery to sin. And then we pick up in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So there are only ten imperatives throughout this entire letter. Only ten commands John gives. So anytime we come up upon an imperative, we should probably examine it. This imperative is, let no one deceive you. And the idea is that the Antichrist, those who deny Jesus as a Messiah, apparently were trying to deceive John's audience. And they were trying to deceive them by confusing them about sin and righteousness. They were trying to say that, that your behavior had nothing to do with whether or not you were a child of God, that there was no evidence that could be produced, right? Now, these, these Antichrists, they knew their scripture, they were very convincing, and they created confusion, and they created kind of a fog about God. They created a fog about righteousness, and they created a fog about sin. They created confusion. Deceivers thrive in confusion. And that's why John gives the command, let no one deceive you. Because deceivers like to create confusion. So one way to identify a deceiver is to ask, is this person creating confusion? This person might know more than me. It might seem like this person has all their stuff together. But if they are creating confusion, and if they are creating division in the church, they are deceivers. And the goal typically is to confuse so that they can gain power. So John gives us a reminder. And the reminder here is, whoever practices righteousness, or we could say whoever continues to grow in righteousness, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning or whoever continues to sin even when confronted, whoever justifies their sin is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So John gives us a reminder. In the fog, in the confusion, look at the character of the person. Those who continue to let Christ transform them will continue to grow in righteousness. Those who are of the devil will make a practice of sinning. Now, when we think of sin, we often think of immoral behaviors that are easy to spot, right? But the deceivers are good at hiding those. So sometimes it's helpful to turn back to Galatians 5 and see the works of the flesh that are found in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, origins. Okay, so I can easily identify some of these, right? Orgies, got that identified. Sorcery, yep. Drunkenness, I, I could identify a drunk person, yeah, yeah. Sexual immorality, yep. Sensuality, I, I think I could probably identify that. Idolatry, sorcery, yeah. What about rivalries? That's a little bit more difficult to identify, isn't it? Dissensions, divisions. Sometimes it's so difficult to even identify yourself as a divisive person. And this makes us, it's forced us into looking inward and asking a question. When there are divisions, what's really going on here? When there are dissensions. But it's important to recognize that divisions, dissensions, rivalries, those are also sin. They may be a little bit more difficult to find, but no, do not be fooled. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions are from the devil. And the devil has been against God from the beginning. So he's been in rebellion against God from the beginning. He's an expert in rebellion. So those who are still in rebellion are modeling their life after the devil. So John gives us a clear contrast. Are you modeling your life after Christ? Are you becoming more and more like him? Or are you modeling your life after the devil? And there is no neutral ground here. You cannot claim to be neutral. You are either growing in Christ or you, can, or you are continuing in rebellion. So the Antichrist, the deceivers, they are good at deception. So John gives us this command. And the way we identify deceivers is to look at their character. Are they growing in God's grace? Can they repent when confronted? Or are they continuing in sin and when confronted they justify their sin? He continues on. Whoever makes a practice, oh, sorry, picking up in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So once again, John circles back around to this idea, right? This whole... This whole passage has been about this identification process. So he circles back around because it's important for us to understand. Jesus came to free us from sin, to undo what the devil had done. So the result is freedom from sin. Not that it happens overnight, but the question is, which way are you progressing? Are you becoming more sinful or less sinful? Does sin control you? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? And I think these are identity markers for Christians. It's a way for us to know if we are saved. Not that we are perfect, but that we are growing in righteousness. Not that you'll never struggle. But I think when you struggle, or that what you used to struggle with, you no longer struggle with. And what you used to think was, wasn't even a sin, you now recognize as a sin. I can remember in my early 20s, like God growing me, in righteousness more and more, God conforming my behavior more and more to him. And I can remember things that I thought weren't even a sin in my 20s. By my 30s, I was like getting convicted, like, wow, I didn't realize I was in sin there. And then my 30s, coming into my 40s, I can look back and I can say, wow, God, I didn't even realize I was in sin there. And I think that's going to continue throughout the rest of my life. In fact, as I talk to some of the older men in this room, I know that God is going to continue to transform us. That there are just areas of our life that we didn't even know we had sin in, and yet he continues to transform us, and he's taking us on our own timeline, right? So the question is, when you're confronted with sin, do you justify it? Do you rationalize it? Or do you repent of it because you want to become more and more like God? 
Now, I think it's important to note, we already talked about uh, abuse a little bit, but I think it is important to note that some behaviors that are produced as, uh, they're produced by trauma management. And sometimes people are stuck because they were abused as a child. And, and that abuse has changed them to uh, have coping mechanisms that are really difficult to give up. And in order to numb the pain, they do things that we would look down upon. And Jesus is not saying, I think this is so important to understand, Jesus is not saying you can't belong to God because you have unhealthy coping mechanisms. But he is inviting you to give those unhealthy coping mechanisms up. He is inviting you to be transformed by his love. He is saying, you are my child. Let go of the dysfunction that has been produced by the abuse. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. Some of us have been in rebellion for so long that we have like super highways that are neurological pathways. Sometimes there are triggers where we feel the pain of trauma and we kind of run back to those coping mechanisms. And Jesus isn't saying that you're not his, but he is inviting you to begin the transformation. And it begins with reminding yourself of the gospel, that you have rebelled against God that he died for you, and that he cares for you. One of the most important things, I think, to, to say to yourself over and over again is, he cares for you. I used to have a, an old Sunday school teacher that would make us say it, but he, we'd have to, like, yell certain parts, so it'd be like, he cares for you. 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 It's stuck with me. Say that over and over again to yourself, that he cares for you, because it's so easy for the, for the evil one to get into our heads and to convince us that we're not really children of God. It gets so easy for us to be convinced that he doesn't really love us, that he doesn't really call us his children. And yet, he cares for you. By this, is a, it is evident who are the children of God? So this term, evidence, just kind of sums up. It's a generality that kind of gives us this some general statement. The term evidence shouldn't be used or should be used as a general statement, meaning generally we can use this as a tool for identification. This is a general principle that we can use, but it's not always the case. Jesus lets us know that sometimes we can't tell the difference between uh, the wheat and the tares. We have to trust God to sort it out. But generally speaking, when there are people trying to deceive you, trying to convince you that you can't be a child of God, or trying to convince you that you're still in sin, or trying to convince you that God can't love you because fill in the blank, or trying to convince you that they have some special knowledge that you need in order to be a child of God, in the midst of all the confusion, all the fog, and all the manipulation, when it becomes difficult to figure out who is right, you look at the fruit. Those who produce fruit that looks like the works of the flesh found in Galatians 5 are of the devil. Those who have the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5 are children of God. So do you make a habit out of sin? When confronted about your sin, do you justify? Then you are a child of the devil. When you sin, when you are confronted with sin, do you repent? Are you growing and maturing in the position that God has placed you in? That is evidence of a changed heart, of a person belonging to God, of a person who is a child of God. John sums this up with going back to the idea of love. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. To love your brother is evidence of being a child of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest, the greatest writing ever on love. So this is a good thing to come back to. Love is patient and kind. Are you growing in your patience and kindness? Not have you been perfected by it, but are you growing in it? Love does not envy or boast. Are you becoming less envious? Are you becoming less boastful? 
Love is not arrogant or rude. Are you becoming less arrogant, less rude? It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Are you growing in these areas? Are you becoming less irritable, less resentful? Do you always insist on your own way? Are you offering more and more grace to others? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. When someone fails, do you rejoice at that? When something horrible happens to somebody else, are you like, I told you that's what would happen when you sin? Or do you rejoice in the truth? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When someone's coming at you hard, do you pray for them earnestly? Or do you just wish they would go away? To grow in your capacity to love is evidence that you are a child of God. When we first got Harper, she had a flat spot on her head because she was neglected, and they left her in a car seat for days at a time. She was so quiet, she wouldn't cry. And people actually used to compliment us all the time. You have such a good baby, she never makes a sound. Crying is what babies do. It's not about being a good baby or a bad baby. It's about communication, right? That's what babies do. It wasn't that she was a good baby. It's that she was a neglected baby who had failure to thrive. She was neglected and gave up even trying to communicate. So when we first got her, the evidence of her belonging to someone else was there. And it stayed there for a while. We had to do physical therapy. We had to work with her on stuff. In fact, there came a moment when she was supposed to be talking. And we had the the therapist over, and the therapist was like, actually, uh, you guys have been meeting her needs too quickly. You need to, like, start making her kind of fuss for these things because she's realized she can just grunt and you'll get it for her. So, like, start forcing her into, like, talking a little bit. That day, Jen and I cried because it was evidence that she had become more and more a Holbert. As she has grown into our family, the evidence, her behavior shows she is more and more a part of our family. She wasn't always the girl that ran around like she owned the church. But as she becomes more and more secure in our family, her behavior changes. When you are first adopted into the family of God, when you are first called a child of God, the change doesn't come instantly. But you do begin to grow as a child of God. You should be growing and maturing, becoming more and more secure in who God calls you to be. You should become more and more mature as a child of God. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that it is not up to us, but it is up to you. We just have to reorient towards you. And as we submit our hearts and we submit our lives to you, you change us. And we thank you so much that your love is evident because you call us your child. You see us as your child. And you transform us to become more and more like your child. In your name we pray. Amen.